The gospel reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were saying with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitude say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses? For what, excuse me, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. But I say to you, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death and they, until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nine. We're back in Luke this morning, uh, beginning with the first Sunday in October with David Meredith from Scotland. Uh, we began to focus on the Word of God and what the Word of God said about the Word of God. We began to focus on sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. And we just went through Scripture Sunday after Sunday. And we, we saw the authority of Scripture. We saw that God, it was God-breathed and how effective it was in our lives. How when we open God's Word, it speaks to us and speaks to our lives in a powerful way. We, we saw that Scripture is like a surgeon's knife, just as a surgeon's knife cuts on us. Physically, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's word cuts on, cuts on us spiritually. The physical surgeon or the surgeon takes his knife and cuts us physically. The Holy Spirit takes scripture and cuts us spiritually. Cuts to the joints and marrow of our souls. This morning... After that detour, we return to our study in the gospel according to Luke. In a staff meeting uh, this last Sunday, the, the, on Tuesday morning, after the last Sunday that we were in Luke chapter 9. Now, I love, I love this about our staff. Uh, Tyler said, John. You did not exegete the whole passage that was read. You you didn't you you, get, you dealt with the first part. You didn't 
deal with the second part of that passage. I love that. That here was the, the assistant minister calling me into account. You know, saying, hey, you didn't deal with all that passage. And I told him, well, that was by plan. You come back the first Sunday in November and we will finish that passage. I hope you will do that. I hope that you will walk away sometimes saying, you know, he didn't deal with this verse or this verse or the last four verses of the passage. Uh, I hope you'll hold whoever is behind this pulpit accountable to preach the entire passage, to deal with the whole passage that is read. And so I'm sure remember, sure you remember the last Sunday in September, we read Luke 9, verses 18 through 27. We dealt with the first part of it. I'm sure you walked away that Sunday morning saying, our pastor let us down this morning. He did not speak to us about the last part of the passage. But this morning, that is what we will do. Before we come to this passage, it's a passage I love. Uh, I have looked forward uh, over the last few weeks to coming back in, in dealing with these verses. Before we do that, let's pray and ask Jesus who spoke these words, who's here this morning, Let's ask him to speak to us. Our Father, we bow before you. We are indeed a congregation, a gathering of priests. This is the one time of the week that, that we come together. We've prayed individually as priests. We've prayed as families as priests. But now we come as Christ's Presbyterian Church. The church you're building in this place. And we come before you as priests. Our Father, we thank you for the children that we heard this morning. We thank you for the dynamic ministry that Kimberly and her team are having with our children. Our Father, we thank you for the powerful ministry that Tyler is having with our youth, with the junior highs and senior highs. Our Father, we lay them before you. Our children, our youth, Kimberly and her team, Tyler and his team, and we pray that you would bless this ministry. We pray that you would raise a generation out of Christ Presbyterian Church like Fayette County has never seen. We pray that in this secular age, when even in this county, your word, your gospel is being so quickly and profoundly abandoned. We pray that here in this place, you will bring a respite. And raise up a generation to speak to this county. Our Father, we pray for those that are hurting among us this morning. We pray for Priscilla Turner. That 
you would draw her close to you and give her comfort and give her strength for these days. We pray for Terry Shelley and the Shelley family that you'll wipe away the tears and bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon their family. Our Father, now as we open your word, we confess that whoever stands behind this desk cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. Our Father, unless your spirit does take your word and cut into our lives spiritually, into hearts and souls and cuts into our conscience. Unless that happens, whatever said behind this desk is in vain. So, Father, we cast ourselves upon your mercy and we ask in these next few minutes that we would hear your voice In our lives, in our hearts, that you would give us hearts of faith, hearts to receive, hearts to embrace your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When dying is living and losing is gaining. For almost two years, they had seen Jesus do the impossible. They had seen him make blind, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the paralyzed to walk. They had seen him heal those with rotting skin and, and rotting limbs from leprosy. They had seen him stop storms. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him do this and do these things simply by command. He spoke and it happened. He did not pray for the sick to be healed. He commanded. He spoke and they were healed by fiat. In time, he had led them to a retreat to Caesarea Philippi on the northern border of Israel. While there, he administered an exam. Its purpose was to ask one question. Who do you say? Peter, John, Matthew, who do you say that I am? Having seen all these things, who am I? When they answered, you are the Christ the Son of God, his mission took on a completely different tack. His focus to that point had been on his identity. But now he began to speak about his mission. He began to speak about what he had come to do. 
You understand who I am. You got it right. Now, this is what I've come to do. For the first time, he spoke to his disciples about being crucified. Look at verse 22. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Folks, that was radical, incredible. The Messiah crucified. We have grown up knowing the story of his crucifixion. It's not strange to us. If the gospel that we know did not include the crucifixion, we would be surprised. We would say that's not the gospel. They were hearing it for the first time. And they were not only surprised, they were shocked that Christ would be crucified. Remember, Matthew records Peter's response. Peter, the one who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. When he heard that he was, when Jesus said, I'm to be crucified, he said, Not so, Lord, it can't be. The Messiah was to be the victor, not the victim. He was to be the conqueror, not the conqueror. This was not the way it was to be. You know, when you drop something, you hold something out and you drop it, it does not go up. Gravity pulls it down. The story Jesus was speaking, when he began to speak of his crucifixion, it was like their story was going up. It was like gravity pulling things up. It was against everything they knew, everything they thought, everything they believed. The crucifixion is a part of the gospel. You know that. They were hearing it, and it was not a part of their gospel. It was not a part of their thinking at all. But before, now we... We left off with that in September. But before they could digest that appalling statement about his crucifixion, look what Jesus said. He said not only that he must die, but he said, look at verse 23, if anyone would come after me, you're going to follow me, you must deny, he must deny himself, take up his own cross daily and follow me. Not only must I die, Peter and John, not only must I be crucified, but you must be crucified. You must die. This was like a baseball bat to the stomach. They had just answered his question with dynamic, in a dynamic way. Who do we say you are? You are Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. They got it right. Yes. The revelation that he had come to die, that he must die, that was ludicrous. But he immediately included them in his mission of death. Not only must I die, if you would follow me, Peter, if you would follow me, John, you must die also. 
They had been making plans to reign with him, not to die with him. Listen, folks. The gospel has not changed. Jesus has not changed. You can hang around him for a while. He'll give you time. Watch him. Make the blind to see, the deaf to hear. You're attracted to him, to what he did, to what he said. But then as we said in September, as we first looked at this event, there'll come a point. You can watch him, but there will come a point that he will say to you, who do you say I am? When we answer, I think you really are the Messiah, the Son of God, he will laugh and he will say, you got it right. Wouldn't it be great if he stopped right there? We've passed the exam. He's the Son of God. But he didn't stop there with his disciples and he'll not stop there with you. He will then move to a second declaration. I am the son of God. If you want to follow me, you also must die. Has he said that to you? First off, first question is, whatever your age, whether you're six years old or 96 years old, has Jesus looked at you said, who do you say that I am? And have you answered, you're the Christ, the Son of God? Do you really believe that? But have you heard him say, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Why does he say that? Why can't it be, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. Isn't that enough? Well, first, why does he say it? It is a matter of commitment. Look at verse 20. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. Look at verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Do you see it? They could affirm his identity. They could hang around and enjoy the fruits of his identity. I mean, it was a fun thing. See, blind people, making blind people see, deaf people near, the paralyzed to walk, the dead raised, storms stopped. That would be a great place to be. But Jesus said, it's not just a question of who I am and my identity. It's a question of your commitment to me. I watched this process take place in a friend of mine. When we first met in Virginia, he was about 15 years older than me. He was a CPA. He was a disciple of Marcus Aurelius. Now, you don't meet too many people 
you don't meet too many CPAs that read Marcus Aurelius. Aurelius was emperor of Rome, but he was also a brilliant Stoic philosopher. My friend Vernon was brilliant. He was an atheist. He was a Stoic like Aurelius. We would talk, and I watched him over a period of time as he moved from atheism to agnosticism. As an atheist, he had said, there is no God. And then he came to say, well, maybe there is a God, but there's no way that we can know him. Then I watched him watch Jesus. One Wednesday afternoon, he called and said, I must come by to see you. He sounded so seriously, I canceled an overnight trip and stayed in town to meet with him. When we sat down in my front room, his very first words were, John, I believe Jesus was and is the Son of God. I laughed. I really did love this man. He had become a friend. Janet and I went out often with him and his wife. But that evening, he was very quick to add. After he had said, John, I, it was monumental. This man who had been an eight was saying, I believe Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. But he quickly added, John, I'm still not a Christian. I asked him, I said, why do you think you're not a Christian? Because I don't love him. I have no commitment to him. He got it right. He proved to me that evening that he knew the gospel. You can believe the identity of Jesus. But that does not make you a lover of Christ. That doesn't mean that you're committed to him. Folks, this is a question of commitment. That's why he asked the question of his disciples. It's not optional. He said, if you are going to follow me, if you're going to be counted as one of mine, if you're going to bear my name, you must, and that's a very strong word in this verse, you must, it has to be, you must, and the second strongest word is deny. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross and die. It's a matter of commitment. In Matthew 10, 37 and 38, and if you don't have your Bible with you, look on your scripture sheet and look at this. They're incredible words. This is another way of saying you must deny yourself, take up your cross and die. He said in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, explain what he meant there. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow me? He's saying it means that you'll love me more than you do your father or mother. It means you'll love me more than you do your son or your daughter. That's not a metaphor. That's not a hyperbole. He really means it. It's a matter of commitment. Why does he choose father and mother? Because those are the relationships that are closest to us. Why does he choose son or daughter? Because those are relationships that are closest to him. He doesn't come to me and say, John, you must love me more than you do chopped liver. 
I hate chocolate. You must love me more than you do your own children, than you do your wife. Someone rewrote the story of the rich young ruler from Luke 18 into a modern concept. You know that this very wealthy young man, a young comer, and he had been hanging around Jesus and he asked him, what must I do to be saved? Well, this was put in a modern context. And the story is I read it. He meets Jesus at a wedding party. And he begins to hang out with him. Finally, he asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus told him, you must give up your toys. He said, you must give up your Ford F450. He said, no, it's a 150 or 250. No, the F450, that's a $100,000 pickup. He said, you must give that up. You must give up your annuity that will let you retire at 40. You must give up your hunting cabin. Give it away. The young man was incredulous. Why must I give it away? And Jesus said, because that is your first love. That's what owns your heart. That is where your first commitment is. And the young man in this modern story replies, Jesus, I'm not accustomed to living like you and your disciples. I haven't been around you that long. Give me something easier. What's the minimum? What's the starting point? And Jesus answered, that is the minimum. That is the starting point. To a question of commitment. It's a question, secondly, of selfless commitment. Look at verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. We're born with a heart that is committed above all to self. We're committed to our desires, our loves, our success, our dreams, our pleasure, our glory. This is where the Campus Crusade got it right with the little booklet that uh, they would give people to communicate the gospel. Remember on that first page, there was a throne. There was a heart. In the middle of that heart was a throne. And on that throne was the letter I, me, myself. Mine, my ego. That's how we're born. My ego is seated on the throne. John Sartell is seated on the throne. I is seated on the throne. And Jesus comes to us in that condition. And he said, if anyone would come after me, the ego must come off the throne. The I must come off the throne. The I must die. There's someone else who must sit on that throne. His name is Jesus. Was it, what was it that William Henley wrote? Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horrors of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments a scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That was his testimony. I am on the throne. Frank Sinatra sang with the same arrogant attitude in the face of God. I did it my way. Can you imagine coming to the end of your life? By the way, I've seen this sung at funerals, at supposedly Christian funerals. It's absurd. Can you imagine? Standing before the God who made you, who gave you life, who sustained your life all your days, who gave his own son to die for you, whose gospel is that you must deny yourself and die to self. And the last words you want sung over you, I did it my way. That's the bottom line of everything from the feminist movement and abortion to gambling, sex, drugs, wealth. It's my body. It's my money. It's my time. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. That's what Jesus was addressing. Jesus walks into a, to all of that self-centeredness, all of that self-worship and says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take himself off the throne of his heart. It's a question of commitment. It's a question of selfless commitment. Thirdly, it's a question of ultimate commitment. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. We covered that. And take up his cross. Now, Jesus had just mentioned taking up his own cross. He said, but you must take up your cross. Have you ever seen anyone wear a gold replica of an electric chair on the necklace? Have you ever seen anyone wear a silver replica of a gas chamber on a necklace? Or a hangman's noose on a necklace? In the first century, the disciples could not have imagined people wearing gold and silver crosses. They cannot have imagined churches hanging crosses in their sanctuary. The cross was a symbol of execution. It was a place where people die. It was the cruelest form of execution in the empire. Did you know that Roman citizens could not be crucified? It was too low. It was too embarrassing. It was too shameful. Jesus was saying to his disciples, just as I take up my cross and walk to the place of execution, you must take up your cross. Notice he did not say take up my cross, take up your cross and walk to the place of execution. Jesus was calling to his disciples to come and die, die to self, die to the power of sin, die to the cravings and desires of your own nature, die to the self-centered life, give up your life. Ultimately, he was saying, the ultimate end of this is you will even die for me. 
you will even die physically for me. This question was very real to those disciples. Ten of the original twelve would indeed die for their faith in Christ. For two and a half centuries, Rome wrecked havoc on the Christian church with only a, a few very brief interludes. It was common. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, was fed to wild beasts. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, was beheaded. Chrysostom was put into a leather bag together with a number of serpents and scorpions and thrown into the sea. Under Valerian, all the Christian ministers of Rome were hunted down and put to death. Stephen was bishop of Rome. He refused to sacrifice to idols, so he was tortured. Tied to bulls and was dragged down the steps of the temple through the streets and died. And then the incredible happened. Emperor Constantine declared peace with Christ. He declared the empire to be Christian. Christians in the Roman Empire were no longer killed for their faith. While Christians were being killed, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, grew like wildfire. But the church gradually forgot that Jesus called her to come and die. That's what's happened with our culture. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in our time, in the 20th century, he was a martyr in Hitler's Germany. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Modern evangelicalism has changed that thought. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and be happy. Now, ultimately, ultimately, it ends with happiness. It ends with joy. But he first calls us. come and die to deny yourself the modern evangelical church talks about the fulfillment of self the fulfillment of purpose talks about self image ask the questions are you happy that's why Christ came no it's a question of commitment. It's a question of selfless commitment. It's a question of ultimate commitment. It's a question of daily commitment. Look at verse 23. Go back to it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. We talked about it. He must take up his cross. And then he adds the word daily. It's not something we just do one time. You see, we keep getting off of the cross. The old self keeps trying to get back up on that throne. Paul was writing to the Christians in Colossae. And what did he say to them? Speaking to Christians, not to the world, but to Christians. Look at Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Crucify. Get radical. It's a daily thing. It's a daily battle. How often have I stood behind this pulpit or another pulpit in Lexington, Kentucky or another pulpit in Memphis? How often 
And yet tomorrow morning, I will do battle all over again with pride, with self, with lust, with evil desires, with greed, with idolatry. Put to death. Get radical with it. It's a daily thing. On September 16, 1969, the SS Manhattan became the first commercial ship to go through the Northwest Passage. She broke through, think about this, 40 feet of ice at some places. 40 feet. The captain was Paul Fournier. Someone asked him about the difficulty of breaking through ice that thick. You know what he said? He said, you can't nuzzle up to that kind of ice. You've got to hit it. You've got to slam it. You've got to hit it hard. That's what Jesus was saying. Daily, come and die. You can't just nuzzle up to the Christian life. You can't just nuzzle up in doing battle with sin. You can't nuzzle up to self-denial. He says, you take up your cross and you go and die. It's a question of commitment. It's a question of selfless commitment. It's a question of ultimate commitment. It's a question of daily commitment. And finally, it's a question of paradoxical commitment. Look at verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life, you want to save your life, you'll lose it. Whoever loses his life, for me, will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit? His very self. If anyone is ashamed of me, and in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you see the irony, the paradox? When you come and die, you'll live. When you try to preserve your life, and keep it for yourself, you'll lose it. You'll die. I was sitting in a chapel at a prestigious girls' school. I was listening as the wife of an international athlete, a well-known athlete. She was speaking to these girls. And as you watch the girls in that chapel, they were mesmerized. Here was this beautiful lady in her 20s, dressed to the hilt, to the nines, and she spoke of her life as a wife of an international athlete. Shopping in Paris, in New York, in London, jet setting all over the world. Every girl in that room wanted to be her. I, I want to I be her. And she talked about that life. Oh, for 10 minutes, on and on, the details. 
And then she spoke of how Jesus came to her life. And how she recognized who he was. And she told those girls. He said to me that I must love him more than I do my husband. That I must love him more than I do my clothes. That I must love him, Jesus, more than I do this extravagant lifestyle. And she said, I knew what he was saying. And I had to say to Jesus, I do love you more than I do my husband. I do love you more than I do my clothes. I do love you more than I do my lifestyle. And she looked at those girls. And then she said that she had found life. She said, you can have my husband. You can have my clothes. You can have shopping in New York or Paris and London. But you can't have Jesus. She said, I'll not give him up. Because I've lived life without him. And I've had my husband. And I've had my clothes. And I've had this jet set lifestyle she said I've had it all that but I didn't have Jesus and I found my life in him and I'll not give him up you can have all the rest of it you keep this that is what Jesus was saying that's what Jesus was saying. People, when you meet him and you hear what he says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. When you do that, that's when dying is living. And that's when losing is really gaining. We're going to sing our closing hymn. And it's our own testimony. Don't sing this unless you mean it. It's our own testimony. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Bow unto his will in our lives.